Drew Dennison is the CTO and co-founder of R2C, a startup working to profoundly improve software security and reliability to safeguard human progress. Drew joins us to introduce a tool called SEMGREP. SEMGREP is a fast source code analysis tool, potentially faster than anything you've ever seen before. If you want to see the live demo Drew does of SEMGREP, head over to the Application Security Podcast YouTube channel to see the video. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Drew Dennison. At Security Journey, we believe security is every developer's job. We work with our customers to help them build long-term, sustainable security culture amongst all their developers. Our approach is to provide security education that's conversational, quick, hands-on, and fun. We don't do lectures. Instead, we let the experts talk about what's important. Modules are quick, 10 to 20 minutes in length. We believe in hands-on experiments, builder and breaker style, that allow your developers to put what they learned into action. And lastly, fun. Training doesn't have to be boring. We make it engaging and fun for the developers. Visit www.securityjourney.com to sign up for a free trial of the Security Dojo. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey. I'm also joined by Robert. Hey, Robert. Hey, Chris. Yeah, it's Robert Hurlbut and uh, Threat Modeling Architect. Good to be here. All right. So the topic for today is something called SEMGREP. And we're going to figure out what that is because I think I know what it is, but I'm not 100% sure. But first, we have to understand our guests where he comes from, and so our guest is Drew Dennison. And Drew, we're going to jump right into what is your security origin story? How did you get started in this crazy, crazy world of security? Hey, Chris, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, let's see, like probably like most of you, I was kind of the designated computer troubleshooter growing up uh, in my family's home. We had dial-up internet, and uh, I don't know. I ended up going to our local library and getting a lot of like Windows XP books, and you know, trying to like just configure and learn a little bit about the Active Directory and kind of all the IT side of things. And then at some point I stumbled on Hacking Exposed, which is a a classic book. And so I read through that in probably uh, freshman year of high school, I think. And then um, what really I think got my interest in security though was reading um, some of the cryptography books. I read Bruce Schneier's Applied Cryptography and uh, there was a great book about the history of cryptography. And so kind of just going into college, I was really interested in in, uh, basically math and crypto uh, with a little bit of security just from uh, some of those earlier kind of IT, like configure your network, turn off all your uh, remote desktop, you know, tunnels and everything like that. So then, uh, you know, went to MIT for computer science and Ron Rivest was one of the like choices for freshman advisor. And I was like, oh man, childhood dream come true. I have to pick Rod. And uh, Rod was just like the coolest, nicest, smartest guy and uh, really didn't want to talk about encryption. He was much more interested if I was getting you know, enough food at the cafeteria. And I was just like, no, come on, we got we to gotta talk about security. <laughs> so um, ended up, you know, doing, uh, you know, major in computer science with a concentration in, in like encryption and, supply, and applied uh, sort of, you know, more practical security st- stack smashing attacks and stuff. And one of my favorite classes was 6857, which was the like uh, introduction to cryptography class that Ron Rivest uh, taught. And I remember, uh, I want to say it was a spring semester class. And I think like 
the, literally two weeks before the class started, the uh, NSA had declassified some old papers, like these kind of almost like serial killer looking notes, handwritten from God Nash. <laughs> and he sent them in back in the fifties. It was like, Hey, I designed this unbreakable encryption machine. I think it was actually like a physical machine, almost like an enigma. Um, you know, would you guys be interested in this? And I think, you know, they, someone must have FOIA requested it and they dropped, they dumped all that out. But uh, anyways, our first assignment was to go through and, and break this in, uh, unbreakable encryption. And it was obviously like there were flaws in it. So I think we did the statistical analysis. Uh, Ron had revested like made a Python implementation of it as best as he could follow kind of John's uh, hand, hand-drawn notes. <laughs> and, you know, we got to go through. And there was actually some real, like I was actually just looking up on the, the system right before this podcast. And there was some really interesting things that, you know, John Nash did have, which was like, you, know, you should basically have the security of your encryption based on like a parameter about how hard it is to make things you know computationally difficult and so you could go through and say like i want a longer key right and we, of course modern crypto we think of that like you want a 256-bit key or a 512-bit you know or a 1024 and you can kind of tune that computational difficulty rather than just like scrambling you know letters uh, if you will so that was just a fun fun thing that really got me hooked and then after that i graduated and went to one of the um Silicon Valley companies, Palantir, uh, which was a great first job, was doing consulting work there. Um, probably wouldn't join Palantir now, maybe, but uh, anyways, I like was assigned to doing a lot of incident response work. So I got to go see large banks and retailers, you know, think like the you know, largest you know, retailers like Home Depot, Target, like those kind of size companies or, you know, big banks in the US and Europe and would kind of go either post-breach or towards the end of my time there, we were working on some cybersecurity insurance products where I was like, I had this hunch that, you know, basically the uh, cleaner your network is or kind of the IT, IT hygiene or health uh, would tell you like your probability of getting hacked. And so rather than having like, you know, the, the standard compliance questionnaires, do you have a firewall, do you have antivirus, do you encrypt data at rest? We're like, well, we've got to be able to technically assess some of these things. Could we just get metrics? And then uh, we were partnering with an insurance company. They were going to do statistical analysis if, if those uh, hypotheses were correct. And so I worked there for about four years. Um, you know, mix of basically being a software engineer and the security incident response work, um, worked as part of a team doing that. And then my old college uh, roommate uh, who had gone off to work at the Department of Defense doing more offensive hacking, and I'd been chatting and we just were like, there's got to be something uh, we can do in security together. You know, do you want to start a company? And so he was considering getting his PhD and uh, ultimately we started uh, RTC uh, together. And so... Now I'm the uh, founder and CTO of, of R2C, but I've always just wanted to kind of bring more like software engineering practices to automate more and more of security. Mm, that's very cool. I almost wish we could play a game of like, since you're someone who's studied crypto extensively, where you say something and then we have to guess whether it's actually crypto related or whether it's something you completely made up off the top of your head. <laughs> but we didn't have time for, to prep for that. Our producers were busy doing something else, but uh, maybe maybe in the future as well. So the topic we want to cover today is this idea of this tool. And I'm trying to think, you spoke about this tool, I think, recently at a conference. Is how I, I saw even that this thing existed. And I looked up on the GitHub page and I went, SEMGREP, because I certainly know what GREP is. And I'm like, Wait, this is like a static application kind of static scanning kind of solution that has some of the fundamentals of grep in it. And so um, there's my terrible probably description of what your, this tool is and what it actually does. Uh, but from your perspective, what is what is SEMGREP? Sure. So SEMGREP is an open source tool that um, our company has been working on. 
you know, the history of the project's uh, actually about 10 years old. So somebody we hired last year, Johan Patelou, uh, who's this French PhD, you know, static analysis genius, and was Facebook's first static analysis hire, uh, was working on a tool called Script at the time at Facebook. And I think, you know, kind of reading between the lines, this must have been the early era. He was like employee number 100 or 200 or something like along those lines. This was definitely the like move fast, break things. You know, there was no types. There was nothing like that, you know, so that Facebook was having lots of bugs and lots of errors. And so the first tool he built was this uh, basically a way to let you, you know, just search for code patterns because he probably started with grep, but was like, you know, grep's not very precise. It's designed for strings. If I want to look for like this specific function call, um, you know, and so, you know, he told me at Facebook, they wrote about a thousand different rules over, over time. And mm-hmm. they would say like, Hey, this method's deprecated. Go please use this other method over here, you know? And that way, if like a brand new hire or an intern started, you know, they could kind of get some basic program analysis running on all, every single commit on Facebook. Um, and then I know Johan hired uh, Julian, who's the creator of hack, you know, which obviously adds types to PHP. And so, you know, Facebook went you know, definitely down the, the type language you know, support and they built other products like Flow and stuff. But Johan uh, worked at Facebook for, for a while and open sourced uh, Scrap as part of a larger program analysis pa- package. Um, and then he kind of moved, retired, did career change, something went to Italy and was working on a couple different books and was just kind of thinking about what was next for him when we got in touch with him. And he's like, oh, that's pretty cool what you guys are doing. Um, and so now he's working full time with us out of Italy. And, uh, you know, we've kind of expanded the original Scrap core from just one language and, you know, or two languages like for PHP and, and some C and C++ to what are the modern programming languages people want to use, Python, JavaScript, TypeScript, Go, Java. Um, and we're adding more, like it's pretty straightforward to add things. But, you know, fundamentally what it's doing is it's letting you kind of just express, hey, I want to look for this pattern in my code. Um, and I'm happy to show a demo, but, uh, you know, same, like if you're going to reach for, for grep to search, like, you know, is the word password anywhere hard coded? It's oftentimes you can be a lot more precise with a tool like semgrep where you can say is password, you know, is something passed to the password keyword argument or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's pretty easy to use. It's all open source. Um, you know, we've been using it ourselves and what we've found kind of anecdotally is you can write a new pattern about 10 to 50 times faster than you could go write like a Flake 8 plugin or an ESLint plugin or some other more traditional, uh, you know, actual static analysis framework. And so what it lets us do, like one pattern I was just working on last week was, uh, I didn't actually realize this until I caught a bug in my own code, but in Python code, if you just use exit as a keyword, it works most of the time uh, because it's an interpreter built in. But really what you want to do if you're going to like ever, you know, do some performance optimizations or something is use sys.exit, right? It's just a really simple bug. It's not even a security bug. But I was like, I can just go in five minutes, wrote the little pattern, uh, and now it's checked into our open source repository of these rules. And it's just like anyone now can be like, oh, that's a small bug. And so uh, I think a really interesting application of that is is, application security and checking for, you know, misconfiguration or, you know, insecure frameworks, things like that. So there's a list. So, so there's a rule base then, or pattern base, as part of the project. So mm-hmm. if I'm somebody new that's coming to this, I can take advantage of all the existing rules that you've written for Python or Java or one of the other supported languages. I don't have to figure out all those patterns myself as day on day one, right? 
Correct. Yeah, there's about 200 uh, rules we have out there right now that we've sort of vetted and written. Um, and we're getting other rules from a couple different people, one like from the Node.js uh, scan tool. He contributed about 50 rules. And so we're just uh, over time, you know, building up this repository that's just open source for ways to be able to say, I'm an expert in, you know, let's say the way you do uh, database calls in Django. Uh, I, here's five rules that just kind of catch common bugs that I've seen. And so that's been really nice to just sort of share these patterns. So is this the replacement or a, I mean, is this designed to be a tool that causes me to say I don't need traditional commercial static application security testing tools? It, it certainly could trend that way. I, I like to think of it somewhere in the middle between grep and like a full blown you know, commercial tool. Um, or even an open source, you know, SaaS tool. I think the areas that we probably don't have right now is anything that involves sort of state tracking, or if you want to do like really deep taint analysis, you know, a tool like Coverity, for example, is going to have, you know, 10 years of, of really great PhD research that's been done in that. But, you know, one of our hypotheses is that it's sort of a trade-off. If you want to go do like whole program analysis, it's often very slow, and you end up looking for kind of I would argue like language type bugs of like, oh, this Java variable is null here and you're going to dereference it and that's going to be a bug. And that's, and that's cool, um, but it's often prone to false positives. And I think where uh, some grep really shines is when you have, um, you know, like a framework, like, okay, we're going to use this library to do all of our encryption. I want to write something that says nobody should be importing uh, SHA-1 or MD5 or, you know, any like bouncy castle or something like that yeah. because I, I know that like you should just use the, uh, you know, NACL, you know, strong box encrypt function. And so just I want to audit all my code base of where people are doing, you know, authentication, but it's happening kind of outside the uh, trusted path. So, so we'll see. I mean, I think, you know, as, as we get more features, like we're working on some basic taint stuff and, you know, I could see it kind of moving in that, that space, but right now I think it's probably more of like the 80, 20, 20 rule, get 80% of the value of a full SaaS product with hopefully less than 20% of the effort. Yeah. And I got to imagine it's pretty quick from a performance perspective. We are targeting a uh, hundred thousand slock uh, per second. So that's about half the speed of grep. Certainly never going to be as fast as they like yeah. you know, rip grep or any of those tools. Cause like you're not able to just do like ASCII, you know, or Unix character matching and regex engines. Like you are actually parsing things into a full abstract tree, but all the, uh, the core work is done in no camel. So it gets compiled to, to native code. Hmm. So you said it was a hundred thousand lines of code per second. That was the metric. But that's our target for okay. just, you know, single pattern. I want to look for, you know, somebody imported this function or something like that. You know, it should be, it should be fast. And like, you know, I think the use case that like we've been using internally is um, either as a pre-commit hook, which has been like worked, worked quite well or a get action or a secret circle CI where you're like, Hey, as long as it finishes in less than like three or four minutes, totally fine. Happy to block the build. Cause that's going to be faster than my test suite. Yeah. Um, and I think that is like an order of magnitude better than I've never personally used like, Fortify or check marks or some of these like more heavyweight things, but anecdotally I've heard those will typically run for hours and then you'll get a report and you have to go through and kind of, you know, triage that. And it's not like in line with when the developers thinking about that bit of code. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole DevOps approach to the world though, right? Is like what you're doing with SEMGREP is the way things have to be to be, yep. to, to live in a pipeline. Like we can't have, you can't tell me that, you know, I got to run my, my SAS tool and I need, you know, two days. Like, oh, we just pushed, right. pushed 300 versions of code in that two days. And we created a backlog yep. of scan time of 12 years. 
all in that yep. two-day period, right? And so you, you've really got – you know, you guys are your your team is is and and I'm sure there's a lot more people behind this as well. Um, but the the concept of doing this in in a high rate of speed is certainly um, the way to go. So um, you mentioned pipelines is one use case. Like you could you can include this in your Circle CI build pipeline GitHub Actions. Now, I'd have to configure my own GitHub action. It's not something that's part of GitHub today. We have um, an action on the GitHub Marketplace that is actually pretty nice. So you can just go to like install it and you paste in three lines of YAML uh, into the, the GitHub action workflow if you've ever done something like that. Okay. And it's really nice. And it's like, it's, we've improved it a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks. So like a new version is coming out soon, but what it'll actually do is it will run the tool twice. First one on like kind of before it applies the patch and then applies the patch and then runs it again and then you know, diffs the results. So the nice thing is, is rather than showing like, thousands of findings, you know, which you're like, I'm not even a developer. I don't even want to think about some other bug in a different part of the code base. You know, it just is going to show you the findings that are in that 15 lines of code or whatever you submitted as part of that pull request, um, which I think is really nice because then you're like, oh, yeah, or like maybe I want to, maybe I disagree with the tool and I want to archive it and just be like, you know, add that to the whitelist file. Great. But if, uh, if it's something I've done, I'm like, oh, you know, actually you're right. I forgot to close that file descriptor or I can have a nice message that's like, Hey, please don't use a float field for you know money. Like you should use a decimal field because it you know, doesn't have floating point errors, yeah. uh, stuff like that. Yeah, no, I think that's a I think that's a neat way to approach it. I think I'd say, you know, one of the things I've you know I've already said this like three times in the last couple of podcasts, but you know my two my twenty twenty two words I'm putting together developer empathy. Like as security people, yes. that's what we struggle with uh, is, is putting ourselves into the mind of the developer. And what you're doing there is you're creating a GitHub action that's smart because it's a developer first function in that, yep. of course, the developer doesn't care about the 10,000 other lines of code. They care about what they just committed, the changes to what happened there. And so that's brilliant to give them just what happened because they're not going to be able to say, that doesn't apply to me. Well, yeah, it does because right. it was your code that changed. It was your change that made this thing pop and go on. And so, yeah, I think it's a really, really neat way. So, so that's, so GitHub Action um, pipelines. Um, what other what other use cases are people you know people running this? Are developers running this on their lo in their local build environment, their local development machine to check things pre check in? I run it as a pre commit hook, and so I just use the pre commit uh, framework, and I have a bunch of other things, including like black and prettier and my pie and all your like style and formatters and, and things like that. And then I just added this as a, as a pre-commit hook as well. Um, so that's worked, that's worked pretty well. I think the other like major use cases we've gotten, uh, one is security teams looking to do like asset inventory of their, their code. So they want to go through and say, show me, I've got 15 or 20 different repositories. I'm going to write three lines of a SEMgrep check that looks for someone who's importing like a auth, you know, auth Z authorization decorator that says admin only, show me across all my code bases, what are the you know routes that have any sort of authorization or maybe more interestingly, which ones don't have any authorization at all. And then they can go through that and kind of do that auditing and kind of at a, like a code inventory level. Uh, another use case we've gotten uh, some interest from has been uh, the security like research community. And so these have been either like professor, grad students, or uh, often like bug bounty hunter types. And so one thing that we've done, this is part's not open source, but we've built out as probably goes more towards our commercial offering. We've built out a giant MapReduce uh, framework, our, you know, platform using AWS, and we can scale up to like 5,000x parallelization. And so what that lets us do is say, I want to run this pattern across a million JavaScript repos, or you know, the top 10,000 Python packages, and just you know, it takes about 
I don't know, two minutes or something for us to go through and scan that, that volume of code because we go in the background and spin up, you know, thousands of these cheap spot instance executors and it costs us like, I don't know, 10 or 20 bucks to kind of go do a scan like that. Mm-hmm. And what that lets us do is uh, two things. One is we think about writing more and more rules into this kind of this open source, uh, you know, rules repository. We can kind of tune them on real code and be like, oh yeah, actually here's this edge case we had to go fix. But it also lets people say, I'm going to write this vulnerability thing and almost do a variant analysis across the entire uh, ecosystem of open source projects and then go submit bugs. And so we're just starting to talk with a couple of security researchers. One of the guys is like I think number five on uh, Hacker, Hacker One for JavaScript vulnerabilities. And he's been pretty enthusiastic. And you know, I think we're at the stage right now with SEMgrep where we've gotten it. So I'd say like an alpha product. And we're, we're just kind of looking for the, the teams and the people who are like, this is really cool. I want to shape it exactly to my use, co- use case. And so I'm really focused on reducing friction and just making sure it, it stays performant and is easy to use. So are you... It sounds like you're mostly code agnostic then you're not because you're, you're running outside of any IDE out of any environment that has a dependency on it's Java, it's .NET, it's Python, it's whatever. Yep. You have patterns that still match certain code constructs as well, right? Right. So we do care about the language because we need to understand the syntax of the language. Sure. And so there is a universal abstract syntax tree uh, for those who kind of like to geek out about programming languages. Um, and we're we're starting to move in the direction of using TreeSitter, which is what GitHub uses for their Atom code editor. And that lets us support like every language that Atom supports. Um, but you're right, the fact that like you don't need to have compiled artifacts. I don't need to understand how like the Java bytecode is built if you ever use a tool like Spotbugs or something right. like that, because you're just looking at the Java source. And even it doesn't even technically have to be like valid or buildable project. We just need like one file or something, because you're just going to look for like, you know, from java.spring. You know, web handler uh, import, you know, servlet or whatever the, I forget the exact, you know, Java pattern that you'd want to look for. And then from there, you'd say, okay, cool. We're taking a request. We're getting like the user data. And then we're going to send that directly to like, you know, exec or something or like a file opener or a database query. And so is that safe? Well, who knows? Um, so you can kind of look for these little simple code audits, right? When you think about uh, yeah. you know, just at a file level. That's mm. very cool. That example you had earlier there about um, the scale with which you're going to be able to scan things like being able to scan a hundred thousand JavaScript repos at the same time. Like, I just feel like there should be diabolical music playing in the background while we describe that. Like, it sounds like a Dr. Evil kind of move, you know, like, you know, like you should be like having your hands up like this as you're telling me. Um, no, that's very cool. That's, that's got to be like the most, you know, and it, it's, it's got to be a problem or a solution that, that will really resonate with people who are scanning lots and lots of source code. Because I know that is the biggest challenge people have with static scanning is the timeframes that go into it. Yep, yep, and that's why we were like, most of this stuff should be, especially if you kind of don't have to depend on building the entire project, it should all be very embarrassingly parallelizable. Um, you know, I can get a spot instance for an hour, it has one CPU, two gigs of RAM for a third of a penny. You know, so I can do a lot of code checking in an hour for very, very cheap amounts of money. And so, yeah, having that scale is, is important. And I think oftentimes, like, the trade-off that I was unhappy seeing a lot of our, my AppSec friends and myself is you either say, I care about third-party dependencies, and I'm going to go buy you know, a really cool tool, I'd say Sneak or, um, you know, there's Dependabot or SourceClear. There's a bunch of, like, third-party kind of vulnerability databases, but they're typically just looking at, like, does this version match the, you know, the CVE database? Or I'm going to say, like, well, what's the code I can control? 
uh, and I'm going to write. And it's only the companies like Google and maybe Dropbox and a few others I've talked to who actually go and like vendor all the third party code and bring it into their kind of mono repo and actually like care about the security of their third party, you know, libraries that get built into the final application. And I think everybody else just kind of throws their hand up and says, well, if, if there's some crazy JavaScript package that has a hard coded initialization vector, someone else is going to have to fix it and find it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a common that's a common approach to third party that ninety nine point nine nine percent of the industry follows, which doesn't mean it's right, but I think it's reality right now. And it's it's rational because you know you're probably not going to get hacked uh, unless you're like a cryptocurrency company. Someone's probably not going to take the time to like hack a third party module just to get inside your environment. I mean, I guess we saw that happen last year with JavaScript, but yeah, you know, if you're just uh, me building a startup, you know, probably I'm safe just depending on you know, Flask and React and whatever other third-party yeah. libraries. But you're running SEMGRAP against anything you're building, so good luck. That's They're true. not going to be able to sneak any of that stuff by you. So um, what does the future hold then for SEMGRAP? Like, is there a roadmap out in years in the future, big big plans for we want to add this big, cool thing? Or, like, what are you thinking about the future? We have uh, four kind of key features we're adding. I'd say, I don't know if it's like – Three, three years out, but in like say the next two or three quarters, we're working on more code equivalences. So this is letting you kind of define almost like in a plugin architecture, there might be four or five different ways to do semantically the same thing. So what I mean by that is let's say I'm opening a file in Python. You know, there's like the file open, there's the pathlib.open, there's with file open, you know, I can rename things. So like as an application security engineer, all I want to say is write one pattern that finds all file opens and then I like to go kind of into this code equivalence world and say, oh, but this also matches. So I'm going to map it back into this, you know, kind of abstraction layer. Um, that's something I'm personally really excited about. The next thing we're working on is, I was mentioning earlier, like support for, you know, more languages. Let's go from like five languages we support to like 30 languages. Um, that'll probably land in the next quarter or two. And then the uh, second or the third thing we're working on is integrating external type information because this is another way you can just be so much more precise. If you take, I don't know how familiar you are with like JavaScript vulnerabilities, but um, for example, like the set timeout method, which is used everywhere. Everyone is trying to use like this polling architecture. You know, you're going to hit the server every 400 milliseconds or something like that. Normally it's given a function, but if you give it a string because JavaScript is JavaScript, it will just eval it. Uh, for you. And so what I want to be able to do is write a pattern that says, find all calls to set timeout where the type is a string. And, you know, obviously type inference is a huge hard problem. I don't want to solve that, but I do want to solve let, you know, the TypeScript engine or the flow engine or some third external typer run over and say, here's what I think the type is, dump it out as a JSON file. And then I can now, you know, refine my patterns. And so for languages like JavaScript, that's easy. Python, of course, has a couple external typers, you know, MyPy now. Uh, Sorbet exists for Ruby. And so um, I think that would just be a nice like step up to, to let us uh, write more precise things. And then fundamentally, once you have types, then it's relatively straightforward to kind of use more of a tainting engine because you're just defining a special type, which is user data. And so the tricky thing here though, and I think like it's important to follow what like say like the TypeScript folks did where you, you end up wanting this community registry that have, here are all the places that, you know, users can manipulate data. So if you take like, let's say a web framework, here's the way you can get change the headers, here's the way you can change the user agent. Like any of these things are like dirty data that you have to, you can't fundamentally trust. And then you're going to have some sanitizers that clean that up. And then you're going to have some dangerous functions, which might be exact. It might be, you know, reading right to a database without parameterized queries. And so if you can now have like a list of like, these are the way people modify things, here are the ways that, you know, these are dangerous functions. 
then you can kind of glue those together and do what's classically known as taint analysis. Uh, so those are the, the four features um, that, you know, we're coming out code equivalences, more language support, uh, you know, having external type information and taint analysis. So if you had to leave our audience with one kind of final thought or a key takeaway from our conversation here, well, what would that be or what is it? Well, my, my thought is uh, just kind of zooming out a level from, from SEMGREP is uh, we should make the computer sweat more um, in doing our security. And what I mean by that is I think typically people will go through and do like a you know, pen test or they'll look through and try to do manual inspection of code. I've certainly had it done on me. And that's great because you get the human intelligence. But what does the world look like where, you know, as the computer's idle, as the developer's sitting there thinking, how do we run more and more you know, analysis behind the background saying, oh, this is going to be a bug, this is a correctness issue, it's a security problem. Or when you go submit it, let's just go run that scan really fast on every single commit. Let the computer do that work. Find the hot spots, and then you know maybe you tell the developer directly. Maybe you just send a Slack notification or open a Jira issue to the, the security team, um, and then they're going to go through and apply their intelligence. And so, how do we augment and just kind of move AppSec from a human process to you know fully automated? I think that's just the, and the next leap forward for uh, security. Yeah, that's, that's a great line. Make the secure, make the computer sweat more. I love, I love that as a line. So Drew, thank you for taking the time to uh, be with us today to explain SEMGREP. And uh, we look forward to following along as you, as you do that development and talking with, with you some more in the future to hear how SEMGREP progresses and um, all the good stuff that's happening there. So thank you very much. Yeah, you can go to semgrep.dev. It's just a short redirect to our GitHub repo, start the project. There's a community Slack room. You know, follow us on Twitter. Uh, very excited to, to be building this and doing it in the open and getting community feedback. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash application dash security dash podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at EdgeRoute and Robert at Robert Hurlbutt. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination.